Hey, everybody. Today is May 9th, 2022. Happy Monday. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast, and I'm Jamie Brazil, your host. Support for the Happy Market Research Podcast and the following message comes from Michigan State's Marketing Research Program and HubUX. Support for the Happy Market Research Podcast and the following message comes from Michigan State's Marketing Research Program and HubUX. I've done hundreds of interviews with today's top minds in market research. Many of them trace their roots to Michigan State's Marketing Research Program. Are you looking for a higher paying job to expand your professional network and to achieve your full potential in the world of market research? Today, the program has tracks for both full-time students and working professionals. They also provide career support, assisting students to win today's most sought after jobs. In fact, over 80% of Michigan State's marketing research students have accepted job offers six months prior to graduating. If you are looking to achieve your full potential, check out MSMU's program at broad.msu.edu slash marketing. HubUX is a research operations platform for private panel management, qualitative automation, including video audition questions, and surveys. For a limited time, user seats are free. If you'd like to learn more or create your own account, visit hubux.com. This is episode 552, and today, according to Spotify, Harry Styles, As It Was, is the number one song in the U.S. I love how the music review site Pitchfork put it, if Styles' last record was about having sex and feeling sad, As It Was seems to be about having sex, feeling sad, and getting over it. I hope you enjoy the song. Today, I'm going to be covering the topic of managing employees, specifically Gen Z. This is the first in a two-part series on this specific topic. To start, and let me be completely transparent with you, I am not perfect at managing Gen Z, and I'm still figuring it out. In fact, a lot of my hack around this episode is trying to get better at doing exactly this. So feedback from you is much appreciated, and I submit my point of views to you in all humility. So... Let's start with a salacious statement. If you are a Gen Xer that is 42 to 57 years old today, then you recall the disruption that happened when millennials entered the workforce. Everything from hiring, training, and engaging quite literally got turned on its head. A white paper that was published in November of 2011 by PwC said that the millennial generation now is entering the employment at such force that they are quite literally reshaping the world of work. 
And in fact, PwC was absolutely correct. The risk management group, Thomas McGee, said, as young professionals, they look for process, documentation, and recruiting language as evidence of a commitment to workplace safety. One great example is how UPS adopted VR for driver safety training. The package delivery company has its drivers practicing avoiding road hazards while on simulated city streets. The VR headsets, they have this training module that it replaced the touchscreen devices that UPS had used in previous generations. The PwC report that I referenced before it actually starts out, in my opinion, with on the exact right foot, and that is it answers this question, why millennials matter. The PwC report goes on to cover how millennials are different from their predecessors, and there's four examples that pop up, although there's many others inside of their published document. You can, of course, find the link to that in the show notes. The four I want to highlight is loyalty light, importance of work and life balance, faster achievement, and importance of corporate responsibility. I'm going to follow the exact same format as the PwC report. I'm going to start out with why Gen Z matters, and then we're going to move into some specific examples of what's different and what we need to do in order, to, or what we can do in order to help facilitate positive exchanges. Gen Z is different. At HubUX, I launched a survey using our panel asking multiple generations this question, why do you use social media? And some of the responses quite literally surprised me. Gen Z is far more likely to use social media as a way to entertain themselves when they're bored and make friends. What I thought was amazing is that I, as a 51-year-old male, I use social media a lot to entertain myself when I'm in line or maybe there's a commercial on TV or whatever. So I was really surprised that there was such a significant a higher amount of Gen Zers that say they use social media for that exact purpose. The second thing that stood out to me is that, or stood out in the data, is that Gen Z is far more likely, significantly more likely, to use social media to make friends. Whereas millennials and Gen Xers, like myself, were more likely to use social media to interact with family than Gen Zers. So you do see generational differences on how and why people are using social media. You can find the exact data tables inside of the show notes if you care. I'm also happy to share the actual raw data with you if you'd like to uh, mess around with a little bit. According to our participants, Gen Z is spending far longer on social media. Of course, you've already heard the statistic than any other generation. In fact, according to our survey, Gen Z spends about five hours a day just on social media. So they're spending more time than that on their phones, but five hours a day is being spent on just social media. That is two and a half times longer than our sample pool across every other generation. So why is this important for you as an employer? Well, according to Brittany McNamara, she's a blogger at Teen Vogue, there is a lot of science behind how social is holding our mental health. Brittany boldly states that this is a problem that is probably as big as climate change. But why is it a problem? Well, good news. Brittany answers that question. She goes on to say that social media is basically a slot machine. As you scroll, you look for things that create this like dopamine release. And like all drugs, the more that you scroll, the harder it is to get that dopamine release. Additionally, the dopamine release you get from social media is far greater than that of an in-person interaction. And this just further enforces spending time on social media over other forms of interaction like in-person. Now, please note that social platforms are addictive by 
design, not by accident. It is simple economics. And unless major social platforms like Meta, which by the way, it's 97.8% of its revenue comes from ads, unless they change their terms of trade, then the primary objective of these platforms will continue to be to increase users' time on platform. Now, obviously this is a big problem. We care a lot about it, but it's a little bit outside of the scope of this particular episode. However, it is very relevant for you as an employer and as a brand because social media has impact where we are right now and it's changed the expectations for feedback. Feedback on social, it comes quite literally instantly. And users, they post some content, whether it's you know some words or some SNL quality sketch, and that content is instantly available for over 3 billion people's feedback and it serves as both attention and validation of the users. So how does this relate to work? Because the ideal work environment, it will have or try to mirror a similar feedback cadence as what Gen Z is experiencing on social. A way that you can do this, a, a hack that I think is like a, a good way to just kind of experiment with the process is emojis and GIFs inside of Slack. So Slack, and of course, all of you use it it is super easy and all of you know how to use GIFs and emojis. But when somebody posts an idea or an update, it takes only a moment to use an emoji to quickly respond and create validation for that post that someone did. And you can even go further to codify your emoji usage. So for example, a clock might mean, I'll get back to you in an hour. And using emojis like that, they can help enforce a unique language for your teams. And that'll also create a unique culture for your teams sort of this like insider knowledge or way that you guys are operating. GIFs, of course, are another way that you can give some funny or create some level of engagement at really no cost to brain matter. So if you feel that connection to GIFs, then go ahead and use GIFs. But it's really important that the time of response is as short as possible. And the mechanisms that exist inside of just Slack alone are great to be able to leverage. All right, so next week, we're going to talk about how the gig economy is impacting Gen Z and employers. For now, I'm going to turn to a recent interview I did with John Dick. He's the founder and CEO of Civic Science. They have built an up-and-coming powerhouse in the consumer insights industry, and I hope you enjoy our talk. Hey everybody, you are listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. I'm Jamin Brazil. I am joined today by John Dick, founder and CEO of Civic Science. Founded in 2007, Civic Science is a consumer intelligence research platform that polls millions of Americans every week covering thousands of topics. Their proprietary insight store analyzes the responses so decision makers can discover market and cultural trends. There are a few things that are very interesting about civic science that you may not know about. First of all, they have a who's who set of investors from Jeff Wilkie of Amazon, Thomas Tall, founder of Legendary Entertainment. I know all of you have enjoyed his movies uh, or their movies, MPD Group, and one of my favorite, Mark Cuban. The second thing is you will find them referenced daily quite literally daily, in nearly every credible news source from the Wall Street Journal to daily blogs. So with that, John, it is an honor to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Oh, glad to be here. Love the podcast. Thanks for having me. Let's start with some context. Tell us a little bit about your parents and how they inform what you do today. 
Yeah, my parents. Yeah. So, well, I grew up in Pittsburgh, a little east of Pittsburgh, actually a little more in the woods. I'm, I'm kind of 50% redneck, as I, I like to say, sort of grew up in the the hills of Appalachia, but um, was super close with my mom and dad, particularly my dad. He was the best man in my wedding. We were very, very close. He was a, he worked in banking. My mom worked in uh, healthcare. I wouldn't say that their careers necessarily informed much um, other than I would say my personal relationships with them did. They were incredibly supportive of me taking risks, of me chasing dreams. You know, they weren't you know, 20 plus years ago, people of my generation were often steered by their parents toward, you know, one word careers. Were you a doctor? Were you a lawyer? Were you a banker? And my parents were incredibly supportive of me doing something different and just gave me a lot of confidence to know that it was okay to, to do that and take those risks. When I started my first company, I was 24 and I did it, you know, basically from my parents' basement, you know, that sort of classic sort of startup story. And yeah, they were just, they gave, they were inspiring to me. Uh, they also taught me how to treat people, which I think, I, at least I hope, sort of manifests itself in the way that I lead the company and the team. But yeah, they were um, they were uh, my inspirations of everything that I do. Your dad, in coming from a banking background, which is, I would put, not very entrepreneurial, at least from a, a broad category, where did you draw inspiration for entrepreneurship? I can't say that I was, you know, planned to do it my whole life. I wasn't like the, I mean, I meet kids now who are like, you know, 12, 13 years old, want to be entrepreneurs. I was not. I actually was planning at one point, pretty much through college to go into law. Uh, I wanted to sort of argue in front of the Supreme Court one day. Entrepreneurship kind of found me. Uh, shortly after I graduated college, and I was actually working in government at the time, just to kind of polish up my resume a bit to get to a to a better law school. And I had a business idea. And it's funny because I, I tried to give the idea away. Uh, I went to a few other people I knew that had built successful businesses and said, hey, I have this really cool idea. You should do it. Or, hey, maybe I'll come work for you and we'll build this together. And I had one particular mentor who's now, you know, today, one of my, my dearest friends uh, said to me, you know, John, why the hell do you want to go work for someone else? He said, you have a great idea. Go start a business. I'll help you do it. If it fails and you need a job, you can always come work here. And that, I wouldn't necessarily say that that was inspiration as much as it was sort of a, a comfort level. I really needed somebody to kind of push me out, you know, into the water a bit on it. So again, I, I would say kind of entrepreneurship sort of found me by way of an idea that I couldn't shake, as opposed to that it was something that I'd like set out to do my whole life. And so I embarked on that. I was again super young, twenty-four or so. Didn't know what I didn't know, and was really lucky. The idea turned out to be actually a good one, in spite of my my lack of experience and management, you know, ex business expertise. But yeah, it was. Um, and then once you get the bug for it. Once I started to get that feel for what it's like to build a business and to kind of be your own boss, as it were, I can't ever go back. You are now unemployable. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Entirely unemployable. Yeah. But I mean, there's a million good ideas out there all the time. In fact, you know, you and I probably have good ideas once a week, maybe even great ideas once a year. What separates really good ideas from successful businesses? Well, I mean... It, it has to actually be a good idea for starters. So I don't want to. I don't want to gloss over that because I I meet people certainly in the before times. Probably once a week, I would have coffee with somebody who was, oh, hey, my son's thinking about starting a company. Will you meet with him? Or or a, a student at Carnegie Mellon would reach out and say, hey, can I come talk to you about my idea? And quite frankly, you know, half of those coffee meetings, those they were just terrible ideas. <laughs> and you know, I'm not the one to tell them that, but objectively, I'm like, yeah, this is a bad. This is a bad idea. 
you know, there are certain things around product market fit. Most importantly, is that is it a real problem that you're solving? You know, you do not want to be in the business of creating a solution looking for a problem. And there's just way too much of that out there. Right. I would say in my in my first business, I had ample evidence of an opportunity and a need in the market. So let, let's just say like, let's get past the sort of initial qualification of it's not a terrible idea. Then it's really, it is, a, it's about a combination of execution, of course, right? You have to be able to put the team in place. You have to be able to build the marketing strategy and the product and those things, but also just an enormous amount of courage and fortitude because it's never going to go the way that you plan it. And it's always going to be terrifying at different steps of the process. And it's always going to feel like the, you know, a house of cards that's going to fall at different times. And, and you have to have the courage and the fortitude and the commitment to it to plow through those things and realize that sometimes a pivot is okay. Or sometimes you have to slow down your timelines to weather your way through a really rough patch of the business, which may have actually had more to do with some external thing that happened. You know, we started this company and uh, well, I sort of kind of started it, I guess, in 2007, but we were really like starting to raise capital and get the business off the ground in 2008, which was a horrific economic climate. That was right when that sort of great recession hit. And I, of course, I didn't know that when I'd already made the commitment to start civic science, but we realized like, hey, it's going to be tough to raise capital right now. Um, so we're not, we're going to raise less because it'd be, you know, too expensive to raise too much. And we're going to have to pace ourselves a little bit differently. So there's definitely some agility, I think, that's required to build a good idea unless you happen to really be in the right place at the right time. Certainly for civic science, I don't think we started, our luck was pretty brutally bad to start it when we did. So most listeners, I bet you haven't heard of civic science. Give us the business description. You know, you said it in the intro there, we're a market intelligence company, but but we do that by way of, of survey research. And I, I wish there was a, a, a different thing to call it, surveying or polling. You know, <laughs> it, it, it evokes so much baggage, I think, with people because they instantly presume you do things a certain way. And a big part of what civic science is about is that we do it a very different way. We came up with a very clever approach to gathering answers to questions from people inside of holes and widgets and apps that they encounter as they're sort of traversing the web. So you might be reading an article on, you know, Variety or BuzzFeed. And at the end of the article, we ask you a question about the article. And then we ask you a handful of additional questions about some commercial thing going on in the world. And we, we do that. Not, these aren't panelists, which is a really, really important part of our business. These people answer our questions entirely for free. They do it because we've gotten really, really good at A, asking them questions they like to answer and B, more importantly, showing them results that they find interesting that sort of, you know, tell them about themselves. Turns out we're all narcissists and voyeurists. And if you'll sort of tell us things about ourselves, we find interesting, we'll share things about ourselves. So we figured out a way to do that through partnerships with hundreds of major media companies uh, as big as Microsoft and NBC and others who allow us to pull their audiences inside of content. And it allows us to achieve a tremendous scale of the amount of data that we collect. And so what we've done with that, which is also, I think, novel, is the vast majority of the survey work that we do is what's kind of characterized as syndicated, quote unquote, meaning we ask a bunch of questions whether anyone's buying them from us or not. And so we have upwards of 350,000 questions now in our database that we've asked over these many years. And our sort of tagline here is that everything affects everything and everything is constantly changing. So we study everything constantly. And the idea there being, if we can ask 
anybody we want, anything we want at a huge scale, basically for free, what, what would we ask them? And so we ask all of these questions and we've built this really cool database that sort of crawls around all of those questions to find patterns and correlations that are somewhat predictive of a future outcome. And that's really what people buy from us is a view into the future. And, you know, so much survey research is backward looking or it's predicated on some human hypothesis, which can be very limiting. Our approach is kind of turning that on its head. Let's ask everything we can possibly imagine and then let technology tell us what matters. And it's really landed well with the with the companies who subscribe to our platform. Yeah, I, I've participated in some of those surveys, by the way, and they are actually very entertaining. And I like how they step you as a user, as a participant. You can get as deep or say as shallow as, as you want, right? So yeah. you feed back to me straight away, you know, the results of my poll and, and how I may compare with the rest of the population. And then, you know, if I want to go deeper, then I have the opportunity of jumping in and participating in additional research, which is actually, I would say, fun. And I can't honestly say that I, you know, market research in general is not classified as fun. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely what we, what we aimed for was, can we make the experience? So survey panel companies have to pay people to answer surveys because answering the surveys isn't fun. We are essentially burdening you with answering these questions. So we're going to offer you five bucks or points to, you know, buy things or whatever. And I think that kind of loses the narrative a little bit. I will add to the sort of user benefit, the fact that we make it very clear what we do with the information that we're collecting. And some subset of our respondents may know this, but most of them don't, which is that the answers they're giving to these questions are influencing the world. Like we've got you know, huge companies who rely on our guidance to make really big decisions. You know, even like a whatever six weeks or so ago, uh, one of the questions that we launched right after Russia invaded Ukraine was, should businesses stop doing business in Russia because of the war? And you know, people were traversing the web, encountered one of our polls in an article, and that question appeared to them and clicked, yes, we think businesses should stop doing business in Russia. And they probably never thought another thing about it after that point. But I can tell you that our data and those results, which overwhelmingly said businesses should not continue to do business in Russia, influenced some of those decisions. Not singularly. It wasn't the only data point by any means. And frankly, most of those businesses, I would like to think, made that decision because it was the right thing to do. But that data gave them extra confidence to do it, knowing what limited blowback there would be. And so there is that definitely um, sort of idealistic intrinsic benefit of answering our polls, which they are actually making a difference. And I think that matters to a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, there's intrinsic motivators that we all have, but, you know, and it's a, it's a time value question for participants to your point. If they're not getting the intrinsic value of, you know, knowing that they're making a difference or enjoying themselves, then you better pay them. Otherwise you're not going to get them. And then of course, there's the other side of that, which is the quality of data. If I'm feeding you information that then instantaneous value to me as a participant, because you're telling me how I compare to everybody else, then I want to make sure I'm answering the questions correctly, as opposed to a transaction, which is strictly monetary. But anyway, it's a, it is. No, I, look, man, you should write our marketing materials. That is like <laughs> one, that is absolutely one of the biggest points, right? Yeah. You know, when you're say there have been polling solutions over the last decade where, you know, maybe a poll was a gateway to free content on the internet, right? So right, right. answer this survey and we'll let you read your article. And there was no incentive in that case for the respondent to answer honestly. On the contrary, they were like annoyed, like, oh, whatever, click, 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 right? 
And so I think that that was absolutely something we focused very, very heavily on when we built the experience, right? The other thing is, is that our, you know, our polls are only like three, four questions or so. And when we experiment with making them longer, what happens is we notice, A, there's some, some erosion in response rate. But as soon as you have erosion in response rate, you start to introduce a bias into your sample because we like to say that every time you add a question to a survey, you increase the bias in the people who answer it. And that's true, right? I may have time for a 10-question survey, but not a 30-question survey or a 40-question survey or a 100-question survey. And in our case, what we found was this sort of like magical number of like four or five questions allowed us to reach the largest possible swath of people without introducing some erosive quality that created bias in the people who answered versus the ones who didn't. And that's super, super important to the quality of your data. You started, as you stated, you started the business in 2007, which was the, probably one of the worst times to start a business. Mm-hmm. What was the market need? Well, I think we just touched on it a little bit. It was a little, you know, times were a bit different. So when I, I sold my first company in March of 2007, and I had the sort of idea for civic science in my back pocket, it had been brewing for a while. And partly it was because in my first business, which was a completely different company, we worked in, we helped early stage tech and biotech companies do business with the government. So very different. We were adjacent enough to the world of politics that we were exposed a lot to like, quote, polling. And not just like horse race polling, like who's going to win the election, but the the role that sort of survey research plays in like message development and policy analysis and all of that. And we were watching like overnight how the quality of that, of that information was, was, was declining. Yeah. Right. And that kind of came to, came to fruition in 2016 when political polling sort of had its darkest moment. But in 2007, even the majority of survey research was still done by landline telephone, which is hard to believe if you think like 15 years ago. And what was happening in the survey industry, particularly political, was the people who had landline phones, as landline phone ownership was plummeting, the people who had them didn't look like the ones who didn't. Then you had the people who had landline phones and actually answered them when a stranger called, which is an even smaller group of people, and they were more biased than you started with. And then pollsters said, that's okay, we'll just call cell phones because everyone has one of those. The fundamental problem with that is that the majority of people don't answer cell phone calls from numbers they don't recognize. So everyone said, okay, now the new frontier is survey panels online. And that was just beginning to percolate in that sort of time frame, 2007 and 08. And we made this exact same observation, which was the people who sit at home who have the inclination to answer surveys for five bucks don't really look like the rest of the country or the rest of the world. We know now, because we've studied this extensively, that paid survey takers tend to be more coupon-centric, more price-sensitive, more brand-aware, more likely to eat at fast food menus, at, uh, or excuse me, eat at value menus at fast food restaurants, Like, which makes all kinds of sense, right? These are people who are looking for like a quick way to make a buck or save a buck. And so we just, you know, we made this not, not grand observation, but diagnosed, I guess, as it were, that the way survey research was being done wasn't inclusive enough. And that was really the important word we focused on was inclusivity. How do we get as many people as possible in the normal daily travels to participate in sharing their opinions such that we can truly reflect like the will of the population? And that was the problem that we set out to solve. The secondary problem was in the conventional way that survey research is done, which is expensive because I have to pay somebody to answer. I have to pay somebody to recruit a panelist. Um, So much research is done reactively quote, custom research. So I wait until I have a buyer, then I go out and I acquire the information and I bring it back to the buyer. That's a slow process. There's very little discovery that happens in that process. And what we knew is decision makers have to be a lot faster today 
They have to be a lot more agile in their decision-making, which means two things. Research has to be done fast and it has to be always on uh, because you know you need to be able to see changes before they happen. And our platform and the way we built the business set out to solve that problem. And I think we did a really good job of that. So, I mean, you're talking about, it's, it's a really important point, right? You've, you've got businesses have KPIs that oftentimes drive questions like, you know, why are my customers not happy with me right now? Or why are sales down or why are sales up, et cetera, et cetera. But you're framing it differently. You're, you're saying we're getting out of the rearview mirror and we're giving decision makers insights that allow them to be forward looking. And I go back to your example with in context of should U.S. businesses actually be in Russia? Uh, we saw post-sale top brands all move out, including McDonald's, one of my favorite brands. How are the decision makers getting to that insight? Well, a um, couple different ways. Um, so our platform is a, it's a software as a service business, right? So this information is accessible through our insight store, which, the, which you mentioned. So there are really two ways this kind of happens. One is there are generally people on the client side who are consumer insights team members, marketing team members who have access to that platform, and they'll come in and pull information as they need it. Sometimes when it's maybe a bit more of a comprehensive kind of request, they'll come to their account manager on our team and say, hey, here's the business question that we need to answer. And then that information sort of flows up through the insights team and into those senior leaders. In a lot of our bigger companies, particularly ones where we've you know worked with now for years, we have a bit more senior visibility. So it's not uncommon for you know, that C-level executive to reach out and say, hey, let me know what you're seeing on this, or please send me any particular insights you're finding that I haven't thought of. And, I, and that the, the stuff they haven't thought of is probably where we make the biggest difference. Yeah. It's, it's, hey, we are seeing something in our information that we're alerting you to, and you probably haven't thought about this before. And I think if you went down the list of our of our biggest customers who have probably the biggest wins to attribute to civic science, it was a question they never thought to ask us, right? Yeah. And that was particularly true during COVID because things were happening so fast. And, you know, it was, you know, the, the overutilized word was unprecedented times, but it really was. Like there was no historical reference point to use to predict what was going to happen next. We had to be finger on the pulse 24-7. And that's why the business grew so much during that time. Yeah. And like Alan Watts, the one of my favorite philosophers, is very well known, has said repeatedly, an eyeball can't see itself. And I think that's the case with brands. And oftentimes the thing that kills you is the thing you can't see. Right. And I would say that that's true on two dimensions. I'm going to get dimensions here wrong a bit, but one is sort of looking forward, right? So, so that's the seeing through the windshield. Like I spend so much time looking at yesterday's numbers and last week's numbers and today's competitive numbers. Like, am I really looking next week and two months from now and six months from now and three years from now? Right. So that's one dimension of kind of visibility. The other dimension is, I would say, looking to your sides. And what I mean by that is this notion of like everything affecting everything is so many of these companies are so singularly and myopically focused on their category, their brand. Right. If they're in the food industry, they're studying the food industry. And what we've shown these people and what we try to bring to the table is there are things affecting your industry, your brand, and your customer that have nothing to do with their food choices, but actually affect their food choices, right? So the healthcare issues that I'm dealing with, my media consumption, my personal financial situation, those things all kind of weigh in on where I eat, how I eat. And so we've really tried to educate these decision makers on, you've got to look outside of your, your lane to understand, particularly to understand the things that are coming down the road that are going to affect you in the future. 
So those are, I think, the kind of two ways we think about it. And and I would say like the most compelling sales proposition we have as a company is a fear of missing out. That we tell these companies, look, we have access to information that you don't. And that information gives us a view, both a 360 degree view of the world, but also a forward looking view of the future. And you're not going to get that without working with us. And that's pretty compelling sales pitch. Yeah. I mean, you know, that it gets back to the point, right? That that companies know that they don't know all the right answers and they are they are seeking for that trusted advisor relationship to help guide their decision making. So when you think about the evolution of the business from 2007, you know, you fast forward now whatever it is 16ish years, what's changed? Oh man, what hasn't changed? <laughs> it took us a long time, much longer than certainly I expected. And of course, it didn't help starting the company when we did. It took us much, much longer to get our data to enough scale to begin to predict and do all the things we promised we would be able to do when we did. And that was a good, you know, almost till 2016-ish until we'd really reached that sort of threshold of like, aha, finally. And now it's been compounding ever since. So a lot of things have changed. You know, in, in early in the early teens, I remember going to a conference and a woman who was then the head of research for, from Procter & Gamble spoke. She was one of the keynotes. And she said at that time, she said, you know, before I retire, social media listening is going to replace survey research as the way that we understand what people think. She said, it's this unabridged view behind the curtain of everything people are doing, what they're saying, the things they like, how their relationships are with their friends. And based on that, we're going to have a much better view of, of humanity than we can get by asking people questions. And everyone at that conference believed that hook, line, and sinker. So this was you know, the time when Facebook was just like really beginning to accelerate. And this notion of, quote, social media listening was all the rage in research. And everyone believed that. And we yelled and screamed about it because we knew then, and now we all know it now, which is we're not ourselves on social media. Social media is almost the opposite of what we actually are because what we are on social media is this idealized version of ourselves that we present to the world to make us look funnier and better looking and smarter and better travelers and more successful with you know more higher achieving kids and all that. So so we there was a the industry spent a good 4 or 5 years chasing the promise of social media listening as a research tool. Not to say that there aren't research merits to those things, but it's not the same as understanding truly what people think and feel. Well, you need anonymity to actually understand people's honest views of things, right? And so that had to evolve. We had to play that out. And then in the sort of mid-teens, the all the rage was, quote, big data and analytics. And it said, well, why do I need to ask people questions when I have every single data point about somebody available to me that I can stitch together because you know, there's all this creepy thing, stuff that happens on the internet that allows me to connect your credit history to your voter file, to your purchase behavior and on and on. So why do I need to ask people questions? Because they'll say one thing and do another. It took the industry a while to cycle through that to realize, you know what, there are certain things you can't learn from people without asking them. There's also a lot of faulty signal in some of that kind of quote, big data, the behaviors that may not be indicative of actual sentiment. So those things had to evolve, of course, right? So we were we kind of needed the market to come to us back to where we are now, which is a new emphasis is placed on sort of the consumer, talking to the consumer, understanding the consumer. So that was all, you know, a long winding road for us, but seems to have landed in the right place right now. And then, of course, the other big changes, change was COVID. COVID fundamentally altered and permanently altered the mindset of business decision makers that they realize things can change on a dime. I need information today, not three weeks from now, not 
two months from now, the way research had been historically done. And that that second sort of tenet of our sort of ethos here that everything affects everything and everything's constantly changing. We have to hammer that into these people's brains. Like, yeah, I'm showing you data today. This data could be useless tomorrow because we can't predict what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, and that is a net, net, net been very positive for us because we're built for that. But it, it was a major change in mindset that took COVID to come along to to really facilitate. Uh, yeah, COVID, it's, it's such a, it's been a blessing and a curse. And obviously, I don't mean that to make light of the difficulties that many, many families have faced either financially or through health related, but it's right. been like a, it's been a fast forward on technology adoption, like nothing else. Additionally, so much chaos was introduced in at a global level. I mean, similar to like a world war that it really galvanized decision makers point of view of the need for consumer insights and also uncovered the lack of opportunity or difficulties around the getting to those insights just because of the operational consideration with being able to do that. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting about your business is you have an always on audience, uh, which is very, very with, you know, measured in the hundreds of millions, which is very, very compelling uh, for subscribers. How much influence do subscribers or, or customers have over the questions that are asked? Well, surprisingly little. I think it depends. Well, it depends on how you want to look at it. We have some really, really smart people here who spend all day studying the world, the news, industry information. We launch questions on our own based on what we believe we need to know to best inform our clients. A lot of what factors into that is talking to those clients. What are you worried about? What are you thinking about? And there's there's definitely some custom element to that. So if a client has a very specific kind of proprietary question that we'll deploy for them, but we're much more on the lookout around what are some some trends and patterns and, and commonalities we're seeing across all of the companies we work with? Uh, what is everybody worried about right now such that we can deploy a handful of questions that we know are going to benefit a lot of people who use our platform? So, so it, it, I would say they, they influence it a little bit less directly than you might think. They're not calling us and saying, hey, we need you to change all these questions you're asking. We're just a lot more proactive trying to gather from them what their business needs are so that we can kind of construct the right way to answer them. Got it. Okay. My last question, your business has accelerated through the pandemic, which is probably creating a whole host of issues, right? You've got issues around talent attraction and talent retention. How have you maintained your company culture? You know, the short answer, honestly, is we haven't. And I don't know if that's a bad thing or a good thing. It has been impossible to truly maintain culture through this last two plus years. And anybody who tells you otherwise is lying to you. It was particularly difficult for us because we're creeping up on three times the size of what we were before COVID. And at least twice as well over uh, over 50% of the people who work here today did not work here before COVID. And yeah, that speaks to the fact that COVID has been an accelerator for our business. And, and I'm not celebrating that, like you said, because there's so much other hardship. But all of those new people came into this company from, first of all, they're geographically distributed in a way we never were before. They're coming from a, a litany of different industries, including many senior people who've come from maybe much more mature companies or companies with significantly different cultures than ours. And we needed them to influence as we try to scale this company from being sort of a mid-sized provider to ideally being much larger than that. We need our culture to actually evolve. We can't be sort of a startup sort of business forever. 
And so bringing in some of those senior people with experience at the kinds of companies we aspire to grow into being, we need them to help move and push the culture. So it, it has changed in some good ways, for sure, but also some really hard ones because there were tenets of our culture that we had established here prior to COVID that we do want to try to maintain. And that's a difficult thing to do when people have never met. People are, again, so distributed. We did a company survey recently looking at, you know, sort of a company satisfaction survey of everyone, one of those, you know, consulting firm kind of things. And there was a big demarcation line of, of happiness about things when you looked at people who worked here before COVID and those who've come since. And a lot of that was because we haven't been able to translate a lot of the positive parts of that culture into this new this new dynamic that we're living in. So, but that we're not giving up on that at all. We needed that survey, frankly, to benchmark that for us and realize, you know, we actually have a lot of work to do to instill some of those really core principles that we had when we were all working in the same building together to today. So I would say we have kind of two forces happening at once. One is that we actually need to move the culture and we have to do that in this really like multivariate growing world. And we also have to figure out how to really preserve the things about our culture that we never want to change. And that, that is a that is something we're focused on and I'm personally focused on like every single day. There are meetings happening in this company almost daily on how are we going to do that? And how do you make it more than just lip service that we're not going to just say these things, but we're going to integrate them into every every sort of touch point we have with our team? And then how are we communicating that to the outside world so that our culture is another selling point? Because people like to work with companies they like, right? And if we can show them like, hey, this is a cool place to work. We have really smart people. We're fun. We don't take ourselves too seriously, but we're also, we work really hard and we're fast, right? So those things we have to figure out how to preserve and definitely a work in progress. It is uh, it is extremely, extremely complicated to do in this environment today. John, I appreciate your candor and lack of propaganda across the whole episode, but especially on that last question. I, I know that many operators, in fact, tomorrow I'm giving an hour and a half talk on this exact topic to other CEOs on how to maintain a productive work environment and culture in a hybrid work model. Um, you know, many people are saying, gosh, I feel like I'm failing right now in this, in this almost impossible task and, and trying to put some legs underneath them to help bolster them that they're not alone. And it's something that we're all walking through together and figuring out, I think is, is really helpful. So yeah, thank you very much. Well, let me just say yeah. one final thing. Nobody's failing. This is <laughs> this is uncharted waters, you know, and we're not going to know. I'm sure I'm sure probably within a month or two, we'll see the first, you know, Harvard Business Review or McKinsey study on the best way to build office culture in a pandemic. And I don't buy it. It'll be years, if not longer, until we can look back and say who nailed this and who didn't and what are the real best practices. Everyone's just trying to figure it out. So I would hope nobody is overly discouraged because we're all in the same boat. That is a perfect summary I, for this particular podcast. And that overcriticalness, I think, is also part of the pandemic where we've operating in a, you know blindness as, as executives, not knowing exactly what to do because we just haven't seen anything like this before in our lifetime. And then also the isolation that subsequently came, especially in that first year, is just kind of like terrible right. for many operators. So yeah, thanks for that clarity. John, thanks for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast. It's been an honor. My pleasure. Everybody else, I hope you found some great value here. I certainly did. And as always, if you take time, screen capture, share this on social media, tag me, I will send you a free t-shirt.